Chapter 20, Part 1 of Gilbert Keith Chesterton. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dick Bourgeois Doyle. Gilbert Keith Chesterton by Maisie Ward. Chapter 20, The Eve of the War, 1911-1915, Part 1. During the earlier years of The New Witness, Gilbert had nothing to do with the editing, and his contributions to it were only part of the continuing volume of his weekly journalism. It would be almost impossible to trace all the articles in papers and magazines that were never published. The volumes of essays appearing year by year probably contained the best among them. He was still, in 1911, writing for the Daily News, and every week until his death he continued to do Our Notebook for the Illustrated London News. I have found an unpublished ballad, he wrote on the subject. Ballad of a Periodical In icy circles by the Bering Strait, In moony jungles where the tigers roar, In tropic isles where civil servants wait, And wonder what the deuce they're waiting for. In lonely lighthouses beyond the Nore, In English country houses jammed with Jews, Men will still study, spell, perpend, and pour, and read the illustrated London news. Our fathers read it at the earlier date, and twirled the funny whiskers that they wore, ere little Levy got his first estate, or Madame Patty got her first encore. While yet the canon of the Christian tore, the lords of Delhi, in their golden shoes, men asked for all the news from Singapore, and read the illustrated London news. But I whose copy is extremely late, and not to have been sent an hour before, I still sit here and trifle with my fate, and idly write another ballad more. I know it is too late, and all is o'er, and all my writings they will now refuse. I shall be sacked next Monday, so be sure, and read the Illustrated London News. Envoy Prince, if in church the sermon seems a bore, Put up your feet upon the other pews. Light a fabrica de Tobago's floor and read the illustrated London news. Debating and lecturing went on, and an amusing letter from Bernard Shaw shows the preparations for a three-star show. Shaw against Chesterton with Belloc in the chair in 1911. An exactly similar debate years later was published in a slender volume entitled Do We Agree? On both occasions, the crowd was enormous, and many had to be turned away. All three men were immensely popular figures, and all three were at their best debating in a hall of moderate size, where swift repartee could be followed by the whole audience. Gilbert always shone on these occasions. The challenge of a debate brought forth all his powers of wit and humor. His opponent furnished material on which he could work, and how he enjoyed himself. Frank Swinnerton once heard him laugh so much that he gave himself hiccups for the rest of the evening. I heard him against Miss Cicely Hamilton and against Mr. Selfridge, and felt the only drawback to be that the fight was so very unequal. The Selfridge debate in particular was sheer cruelty. So utterly unaware was the businessman that he was being intellectually massacred by a man who regarded all that Selfridge's stores stood for as the ruin of England. Occasionally Mr. Selfridge looked bewildered when the audience rocked with laughter at some phrase that clearly conveyed no meaning to him at all. 
but so complete was his failure to understand what it was all about that when the meeting was over he asked if chesterton would not write his name with a diamond on a window of his store already graced with so many great names for once chesterton was at a loss for words oh how jolly he murmured feebly very different was it when he debated with bernard shaw with belloc as third performer ayat st lawrence welwyn hertz twenty seventh october nineteen eleven don't be dismayed this doesn't need a reply my dear g k c with reference to this silly debate of ours what you have to bear in mind is this i am prepared to accept any conditions if they seem unfair to me from the front of the house all the better for me therefore do not give me the advantage unless you wish to or are as you probably are as indifferent to the rules as i am the old hyman bradlaugh and shaw foot debates s f was a two-nighter were arranged thus each debater made three speeches one thirty minutes one of fifteen and one of ten strict time was kept the audiences were intensely jealous of the least departure from the rules and the chairman simply explained the conditions and called time without touching the subject of the debate the advantages of this were a that the opponent or the opener could introduce fresh matter up to the end of his second speech and was tied up in that respect for the last ten minutes only and b that the debate was one against one and not one against two and with less time allowed for him in that and it must have been held that the chairman dealt with the debate the disadvantages for us are that we both want belloc to let himself go i simply thirst for the blood of his servile state i'll servile him and nobody wants to tie you down to matter previously introduced when you make your final reply we shall all three talk all over the shop possibly never reaching the socialism department and belloc will not trouble himself about the rules of public meeting and debate even if there were any reason to suppose that he is acquainted with them do you recollect how parnell and bigger floored the house in the palmy days of obstruction by meanly getting up the subject of public order which no one else suspected the existence of i therefore conclude that we had better make it to some extent a clown's cricket match and go ahead as in the debates with sanders and macdonald and cicely hamilton which were all wrong technically in a really hostile debate it is better to be as strict as possible but as this is going to be a performance in which three Macs, who are on the friendliest terms in private, will belabor each other recklessly on wooden scalps and pillowed waistcoats and trouser seats, we need not be particular. Still, you had better know exactly what you are doing. Hence this wildly hurried scrawl. Did you see my letter in Tuesday's Times? Magnificent. My love to Mrs. Chesterton and my distinguished consideration to Winkle to hell with the pope winkleton was the chesterton's dog who preceded coodle of the poem ever g b s p s i told sanders to explain to you that you would be entitled to half the gate or a third if belloc shares and that you were likely to overlook this if you were not warned i take it that you have settled this somehow at the second of these debates belloc opened the proceedings by announcing to the audience you are about to listen I am about to sneer. His only contribution to the debate was to recite a poem. Our civilization is built upon coal. Let us chant in rotation our civilization, that lump of damnation, without any soul. Our civilization is built upon coal.
Bernard Shaw was on the friendliest terms with the others and admired their genius, but thought it ill-directed. Bellock, he had told Chesterton, was wasting prodigious gifts in the service of the Pope. I have not met G.K.C. Shaw always calls him a man of colossal genius, writes Lawrence of Arabia to a friend. As a lecturer, Chesterton's success was less certain than as a debater. Many of his greatest admirers say they have heard him give very poor lectures. He was often nervous and worried beforehand. As a lecturer, wrote the Yorkshire Weekly Post after a performance in this year, 1911, it was a fiasco, but as an exhibition of Chesterton, it was pleasing. Although his writing appeared almost effortless, he did, in fact, take far more pains about it than he did in preparing for a lecture. He seemed quite incapable of remembering the time or place of an appointment, or of getting there on time, if at all. Stories are told of his non-appearance on various platforms. My husband remembers a meeting in a London theatre at which Chesterton had been billed as one of the speakers. The meeting, arranged by the Knights of the Blessed Sacrament, was well underway before he arrived, panting but unperturbed. His apology ran something like this. As knights, you will understand my not being here at the beginning, for the whole point of knighthood was that the knight should arrive late, but not too late. Had St. George not been late, there would have been no story. Had he been too late, there would have been no princess. Even more annoying was his habit of beginning his lecture by saying he had not prepared it. Such a remark is not likely to please any audience, least of all an audience that is paid for admission and knows that the lecturer is receiving a large fee. But money, whether he was receiving it or giving it away, meant nothing to him. He had not a strong voice, and I have seen him, when a microphone was provided, holding a paper of notes between himself and it. An ardent admirer of his writing told me he had made far too many jokes about his size, yet how pleasing they sometimes were. When his chairman, for instance, after a long wait, said he had feared a traffic accident, I had met a tram car, Chesterton replied. It would have been a great, and, if I may so, an equal encounter. He thought badly of his own lecturing and began once by saying, I might call myself a lecturer, but then again I fear some of you may have attended my lectures. Actually, in spite of the jokes, his thoughts were centered entirely on his subject, not on himself. An anonymous society diarist quoted by Cosmo Hamilton writes of an occasion when he was given rather foolishly a little gold period chair, and as he made his points, it slowly collapsed under him. He rose just in time and sinking into another chair that someone had put behind him, began at the word he had last spoken. No acting could have secured such an effect of complete indifference. It was evident that he had barely noticed the incident. Ellis Roberts completes the picture. He knew Gilbert already as a brilliant talker and came to hear him from a platform. I remember the manner of his lecture. It seemed to be written on a hundred pieces of variously shaped paper, written in ink and pencil of all colors, and in chalk. All the pages were in a splendid and startling disorder, and I remember being at first a little disappointed. Then the papers were abandoned, and G.K.C. talked. From Reading for Pleasure, page 96. At this time, Bernard Shaw scored a victory over his friend, for beside lecturing, journalism, and the publication of three considerable and two minor books, Chesterton, between 1911 and the war, wrote the play that Shaw had been so insistently demanding. The books were Man Alive, 1911, A Miscellany of Men, Essays, 1912, The Victorian Age in Literature, 
February 1913, The Wisdom of Father Brown, 1914, The Flying Inn, 1914. The play was Magic, produced at the Little Theater in October 1913. One who admired it was George Moore. He wrote to Forster Beauville, November 24, 1913. I followed the comedy of magic from the first time to the last with interest and appreciation, and I am not exaggerating when I say I think of all modern plays, I like it the best. Mr. Chesterton wished to express an idea, and his construction and his dialogue are the best that he could have chosen for the expression of that idea. Therefore, I look upon the play as practically perfect. The prologue seems unnecessary. Likewise, the magician's love for the young lady. That she should love the magician is well enough, but it materializes him a little too much if he returns that love. I would have preferred her to love him more and he to love her less. But this spot, if it is to be a spot, is a very small one on a spotless surface of excellence. I hope I can rely upon you to tell Mr. Chesterton how much I appreciated his play, as I should like him to know my artistic sympathies. Artistic sympathies is not ungenerous, considering how Chesterton had written of George Moore in Heretics. It is rather comic that all the reviews hailing from Germany, where the play was very soon produced, compare Chesterton with Shaw, and many of them say that he is the better playwright. He means more to it, a Munich paper was translated as saying, than the good old Shaw. Chesterton's superiority can hardly be entertained in the matter of technique. Actually, what the critic meant was that he preferred the ideas of Chesterton to the ideas of Shaw. Both men were chiefly concerned with ideas, but while Shaw excelled chiefly in presenting them through brilliant dialogue, G.K.'s deeper thoughts were conveyed in another fashion. The Duke might almost, it is true, have been a Shaw character, but the fun the audience got out of him was the least thing they received. Chesterton once said that he suspected Shaw of being the only man who had never written any poetry. Many of us suspect that Chesterton never wrote anything else. This play is a poem, and the greatest character in it is atmosphere. Chesterton believed in the love of God and man. He believed in the devil. Love conquers diabolical evil, and the atmosphere of this struggle is felt even in the written page, and was felt more vividly in the theater. After a passage of many years... Those who saw it remembered the moment when the red lamp turned blue as a felt experience. But as to popularity, in England at least, it would be absurd to compare G.K. with G.B.S. The play's run was a brief one, and it was years before he attempted another. Chesterton was fighting corruption, fighting the servile state. Above all things, he was fighting sterility, fighting it in the name of life, life with its richness, its variety, its sins and its virtues, with its positively outrageous sanity. Thank you for being alive, wrote an admirer to him. Man Alive is above all things a hymn to life. It is the acid test of a Chestertonian. Reviewers became wildly enthusiastic or bitterly scornful. Borrowing from his own phrase about Pickwick, I am inclined to say that men not in love with life will not appreciate man alive, nor, I should imagine, heaven. The ideas that make up the book had been long in his head. The story of White Wind, written while he was at the Slade School, tells one half of the story. An unpublished fragment of the same period entitled The Burden of Balaam, the other half. 
The great wind that blows Innocent Smith to Beacon House is the wind of life, and it blows through the whole story. Before an improvised court of law, Smith is tried on three charges. Home-breaking, but it was his own house that he broke into to renew the vividness of ownership. Bigamy, but it was his own wife, with whom he repeatedly eloped to renew the ecstasy of first love. Murder, with a large and terrifying revolver, but he dealt life, not death, from its barrel. For he used it only to threaten those who he said they were tired of life and that life was not worth living, and he forced them through fear of death to hymn the praises of life. The explanation given by Smith to Dr. Eames, the master of Breakspear College, of his ideas and his purpose, gives the note of fooling and profundity filling the whole book. I want both my gifts to become virgin and violent, the death and the life after death. I'm going to hold a pistol to the head of the modern man, but I shall not use it to kill him, only to bring him to life. I begin to see a new meaning in being the skeleton at the feast. You can scarcely be called a skeleton, said Dr. Eames, smiling. That comes of being so much at the feast, answered the massive youth. No skeleton can keep his figure if he is always dining out, but that is not quite what I meant. What I meant is that I caught a kind of glimpse of the meaning of death and all that, the skull and the crossbones, the memento mori. It isn't only meant to remind us of a future life, but to remind us of a present life too. With our weak spirits, we should grow old in eternity if we were not kept young by death. Providence has to cut immortality into lengths for us as nurses cut the bread and butter into fingers. Man Alive appeared in 1911. Next year came what is perhaps his best-known single piece of writing, The Battle of Lepanto. In the spring of 1912, he had taken part in a debate at Leeds, affirming that all wars were religious wars. Father O'Connor supported him with a magnificent description of the Battle of Lepanto. Obviously, it seized Gilbert's mind powerfully, for while he was still staying with Father O'Connor, he had begun to jot down lines, and by October of that year, the poem was published. One might fill a book with the tributes it has received from that day to this. Perhaps none pleased him more than the note from John Buchan, June 21st, 1915. The other day in the trenches, we shouted your Lepanto. The Victorian age in literature made many of his admirers again express the wish that he would stay in the field of pure literature. His characterizations of some of the Victorian writers were sheer delight. Ruskin had a strong right hand that wrote of the great medieval ministers in tall harmonies and traceries as splendid as their own, and also, so to speak, a weak and feverish left hand that was always fidgeting and trying to take the pen away and write an evangelical tract about the immorality of foreigners. It is not quite unfair to say of him that he seemed to want all parts of the cathedral except the altar. Tennyson was a provincial Virgil. He tried to have the universal balance of all the ideas at which the great Roman had aimed, but he hadn't got hold of all the ideas to balance. Hence, his work was not a balance of truths like the universe. It was a balance of whims like the British Constitution. He could not think up to the height of his own towering style. 
while Emily Bronte was as unsociable as a storm at midnight, and while Charlotte Bronte was at best like the warmer and more domestic thing, a house on fire, they do connect themselves with the calm of George Eliot as the forerunners of many later developments of feminine advance. Many forerunners, if it comes to that, would have felt rather ill if they had seen the things they foreran. The best and most profound part of the book was, however, the working out of certain generalizations. The effect on the literature of the period of the Victorian compromise between religion and rationalism. Macaulay, it is said, never talked about his religion, but Huxley was always talking about the religion he hadn't got. The breakup of the compromise between Victorian Protestantism and Victorian rationalism simultaneously destroyed one another, the uniqueness of the nonsense writing of the later Victorian period. In one illuminating passage, Chesterton defends what seems at first sight merely his own habit of getting dates and events in the wrong order. The mind moves by instincts, associations, premonitions, and not by fixed dates or completed processes. Action and reaction will occur simultaneously, or the cause actually be found after the effect. Errors will be resisted before they have been properly promulgated. Notions will be first defined long after they are dead. Thus Wordsworth shrank back into Toryism, as it were, from a Shelleyan extreme of pantheism as yet disembodied. Thus Newman took down the iron sword of dogma to parry a blow not yet delivered that was coming from the club of Darwin. For this reason, no one can understand tradition or even history who has not some tenderness for anachronism. This was not merely special pleading. It contains a profound truth. Wilfred Ward proved it of Newman in the biography that G.K. had probably just been reading. Chesterton noted it himself in his book on Cobbett, who, as he said, saw what was not yet there. It is almost the definition of genius. Already at this date, Chesterton and Belloc were fighting much that to the rest of us only became fully apparent long afterwards. I think you would make a very good God, wrote E.V. Lucas to Chesterton. There is indeed something divine in an almost ceaseless outpouring of creative energy. But only God can create tirelessly, and Chesterton was at this time beginning to be tired. You can see it in The Flying In. The book is still full of vitality, and the lyrics in it, later published separately under the title Wine, Water, and Song, are as good in that kind as any that he ever wrote. But with all its vigor, the book is still a less joyful one than Man Alive, and it is a much more angry one. Man Alive was a pay-in of joy to life. The Flying In is fighting for something necessary to its fullness, freedom. It must have been just while he was writing it that there were threatenings of a case against him by Lever Brothers on account of a lecture given at the city temple on the snob as a socialist. In answering a question, he spoke of port sunlight as corresponding to a slave compound. Others besides Lever Brothers were shocked, and some clarification was certainly called for. Bellick and Chesterton meant by slavery, not that the poor were being bullied or ill-treated, but that they had lost their liberty. Gilbert went so far as to point out how much there was to be said in defense of a slave state. Under slavery, the poor were usually fed, clothed, and housed adequately. Slaves had often been much more comfortable in the past than were free men in the world today. A model employer might, by his regulations, greatly increase the comfort of his workers and yet enslave them.
A letter from Bernard Shaw advising him to get up certain details asks the question of whether the workman at Port Sunlight would forfeit his benefits and savings should he leave. If this is so, wrote Shaw, then though Lever may treat him, as well as Pickwick would no doubt have treated Old Weller, if he had consented to take charge of his savings. Lever is a master of his employee's fate and captain of his employee's soul, which is slavery. He went on to offer financial help in fighting the case. The Christian Commonweal had reported Chesterton's speech and was also threatened with the law. To the editor, G.K. wrote, Only a hasty line to elongate the telephone. I am sorry about this business for one reason only, and that is that you should be even indirectly mixed up in it. Lever can sue me till he bursts. I'm not afraid of him, but it does seem a shame when I've often attacked you, always in good faith and what was meant for good humor, and when you've heaped coals of fire by printing my most provocative words, that your chivalry should get you even bothered about it. I'm truly sorry and ask pardon of you, but not of old sun and soap suds, I can tell you. Another very hasty line about the way I shall, if necessary, answer, about which I feel pretty confident. I should say it is absurd to have libel actions about controversies instead of about quarrels. I would mean every capitalist being prosecuted for saying that socialism is robbery and every socialist for saying property is theft. By great luck, the example lies at the threshold of the passage quoted. The worst I said of Port Sunlight was that it was a slave compound. Why? That was the very phrase about which half the governing class argued with the other half a few years ago. Are all who call the Chinese slaves to be sued by all who didn't? Am I prosecuted for a terminology? Enough. You know the rest. Go on with the passage and you will see the luck continues. Abrupt, brief, and perhaps abbreviated, as my platform answer was, it really does contain all the safeguards against imputing cruelty or human crime to poor lever. It defines slavery as the imposition of the master's private morality, as in the matter of the pubs. It expressly suggests it does not imply cruelty, for it goes out of its way to say that such slaves may be better off under such slavery. So they were, physically, both in Athens and Carolina. It then says that a merely mystical thing, which I think is Christianity, makes me think this slavery damnable, even if it is comfortable. I would defend all this as a lawful sociological comment in any court in civilization. I tell you my line of defense to use discreetly and at your discretion. If the other side are bent on fighting, I should reserve the defense. If they seem open to reason, I should point out that it is on our side. His old schoolfellow Salter was also his solicitor, and a letter to Wells shows in part the advice Salter gave. Dear Wells, I'm asked to make a suggestion to you that looks like, and indeed is, infernal impudence but which a further examination will rob of most of its terrors. Let not these terrors be redoubted when I say that the request comes from my solicitor. It is a great lark. I am writing for him when he ought to be writing for me. In the forthcoming case, Lever versus Chesterton and another, the defendant Chesterton will conduct his own case, as his heart is not, like that of the lady in the song, another's. He wants to fight it purely as a point of the liberty of letters and public speech. 
and to show that the phrase slavery, wherein I am brought in question, is current in the educated controversy about the tendency of capitalism today. The solicitor, rather to my surprise, approves this general sociological line of defense and says that I may be allowed one or two witnesses of weight and sociological standing, not, of course, to say my words are defensible, still less that my view is right, but simply to say that the servile state and the servile terms in connection with it are known to them as parts of a current and quite unmalicious controversy. He has suggested your name, and when I have written this, I have done my duty to him. You could not, by the laws of evidence, be asked to mix yourself up with my remarks on Lever. You could only be asked, if at all, whether there was or was not a disinterested school of sociology holding that capitalism is close to slavery, quite apart from anybody. Do you care to come and see the fun? Yours always, G.K. Chesterton. The suggested line was so successful that Wells' testimony was not called for. The case was withdrawn. No apology was even asked from Gilbert, whose solicitor tells me that Messrs. Lever behaved very reasonably when once it was made clear to them that Gilbert was not a scurrilous person making a vulgar and slanderous attack upon their business. End of chapter 20, part 1.